My text is verses 1 to 3. I want to read that and uh, then we'll look into this, these verses a little bit this morning. Ephesians 1, 1 to 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, well, today I begin a study on the book of Ephesians. We're going to go through this book first by verse, and it will take us into the next into next year. So I'm not going to be in any rush. And, and I hope you're not thinking, man, when are we going to get done with this book? So I'm not going to be in a rush. We're just going to, there's just so much to to plumb the depths of this great book. It's a tremendous book called the Queen of the Epistles. It's a very deep and profound book spiritually. And I hope as you read through this book, it just affirms God's love to you and for you. And that you just bask in God's great grace for you. And then as a result of knowing who you are in Christ and that great grace you live for him. Let me give a simple outline of the book of Ephesians. It's broken into two perfect sections, chapters one to three and four to six. Chapters one through three deal with who we are in Christ. Chapters four through six, walking with Christ. One to three, what Christ has done for me. Four through six, what I do in light of what he's done for me. Chapters one through three, the verbs are many of the verbs. Most of them are in the indicative mood, which means they're statements of fact. Chapters four through six, many of the verbs, many more than in the first three chapters, are in the imperative mood, which are commands. Chapters one through three are spiritual wealth in Christ. Four through six are spiritual walk with Christ. One, three and four, one are the two key verses in the book of Ephesians. They, they control each section and what follows. And we're going to have a key verse for each chapter as we go through. Harold already made plaques for those. We put those plaques on the wall as you're coming in. You can look at that verse. You could say, you know what, I'm going to commit this month to memorizing that verse. Ephesians 1, 3 would be our memory verse if you want to do that. If you want to take a deeper dive into Ephesians, use Right Now Media. There were several recommended sources that, that Kim mentioned last week. And I, you can just deepen your knowledge of the book of Ephesians. So I want to give a little background information this morning and, and touch on those first three verses. The author is stated here, Paul, whose birth name was Saul. His parents named him after the first king of Israel. And I'm sure they had high hopes for their son in naming him that. And the name Saul means tall. And the Old Testament Saul was indeed head and shoulders taller than all his countrymen. And Paul, like his namesake Saul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was born and raised in Tarsus, Cilicia, which if you looked on a map, you would see that would be somewhere in southeast Turkey today. 
born of Jewish lineage, and his parents wanted him to have a proper education. So they sent him away to boarding school in Jerusalem to study under the renowned Rabbi Gamaliel. To do that, to send him away to school, his parents obviously had means. In fact, we we learned that Paul's dad purchased his own Roman citizenship, and that, that wasn't cheap. So, and Paul said that he was born a Roman citizen. All Jewish boys during the elementary school age years, the, the goal would be that they would learn and memorize the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Imagine that, memorizing that. Especially bright students then would go on in what we would think of as the middle school years, and they would memorize the rest of the Old Testament. And then the best of the best during what would be what we would think of as the high school years, they would learn and memorize rabbinical writings. So this is the apostle Paul. He was very smart and very religious. He gives his credentials in Philippians three, four to six. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he he spoke Hebrew language perfectly. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul mentions his zeal for the law. And his persecution and hatred of the early church, he persecuted new Christians, arrested them, put them in jail. In fact, he oversaw the execution of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, in Acts 8.1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So Paul was the leading persecutor of the early church in Jerusalem. But then he met Christ on the road to Damascus and Christ changed his name from Saul to Paul, which means small. His parents tried to make him a somebody, make him tall. But Christ stripped him of his own efforts and made him tall in Christ. Now let's go to verse one. And if you have your Bibles, you might want to open it because I'm just going to go through this, through the verses here. Verse one, Paul is called an apostle. What does that mean? It means literally one sent by God. We may think of that today as a missionary who is sent by God to go to a foreign land and establish churches. And that's what Paul did. He established churches wherever he went. He actually became the the spokesman for the Gentile churches. The one who was their greatest persecutor and enemy became their number one supporter. That just shows the plan of God. It's hard to understand. It's just pure grace that God would take this evil man who was most against the church and made him the leader of the church, as it were. He says his apostleship wasn't by self-appointment, was but... By the will of God and your appointment, not as an apostle, but is also by the will of God. God has placed you where he wants you in your family, in your home, 
at your workplace or school place in this church by his will. Now, perhaps when you think of the word apostle, you think of Peter, James and John, maybe the original 12 disciples, they're apostles. But as you can see, there are other apostles, Paul, Barnabas in Acts 14, 14, Andronicus in Junia in Romans 16, 7 are also called apostles. So there are more apostles than just the original 12. And while Paul never met Jesus in the flesh, he did meet Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Jesus appeared to him and called him to preach to the Gentiles. And Paul says after that call, he went away for three years into a desert place to pray and study. And he says there that Jesus himself taught him. Look at Galatians 1, 17 and 18. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him for 15 days. You know, that three years kind of secluded apart with Jesus is the same exact amount of time that Jesus spent with his 12 disciples. So he got that same training, as it were. Paul wasn't an an apostle who wrote 13 New Testament letters. That's nearly half of all the books of the New Testament Paul wrote. Paul writes his letter to the saints. So let's talk about that word saint. It's not the New Orleans football team. Let me give you a definition from the dictionary. A person recognized by canonization Worthy of public veneration. So we have St. Paul, St. Peter, St. John, maybe saints from the Middle Ages. Or perhaps you could think of a modern day person who was really holy, like Mother Teresa. Or maybe you think of your grandmother in heaven. Wow, she was a saint. We always use the term a dear old saint, don't we? They're always old, never young. We never say that dear teenage saint, do we? Saints are old, holy, and dead. That's what a saint is. But Paul calls these Christians in Ephesus saints. He called the Corinthian Christians saints. And if you read the book of Corinthians, you think these people are anything but saints. They had all kinds of problems and issues. And it's always plural, saints. Never uses an individual saint is identified in the New Testament. And they're always living. Some were probably young. The Greek word there is hagios, which means holy or holy ones, set apart ones, God's people. And you know what? That's us, too. So the focus isn't on some heroic spiritual acts that you perform to make you a saint. It's simply who you are in Christ. I've had this silly thought over the years. I probably shouldn't even tell you this, but I will anyway. I always thought it would be really cool to have pastored St. Edward's Church. And then if the phone rang, I could say St. Edward's Church, Edward speaking. And just blow someone's mind who was calling. But you know what the truth of the matter is? You're a saint too. And I want you to view yourself that way. 
In fact, all the people in this room, if they're in Christ, are saints. Take a moment just to look around. Look around at some other saints. Now, that's probably blowing your mind right now, too. What? That person? No way they're a saint. I know them pretty well. I live with them. No, they're a saint. According to Paul, right? The Ephesian Christians, they're, 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 it's not like they're better than you. They, they were people who were just like you and me. The Christian life isn't about trying to acquire sainthood by the time you die. It's who you are now. Like C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. That's a great series of books if you want to read to your kids or read for yourself. Peter and Edmund and Susan and Lucy were princes and princesses in Narnia. Back in England, just ordinary kids. In Christ, you're a saint. Recognize what God's done for you and then just live out that truth through your life. Really, the pressure's off. You're not trying hard to acquire sainthood. Just be who you are right now in Christ. And it says in the text that they were also faithful. That means they had faith in Christ to believe on him as their savior. But then they had fidelity. That was their part of the equation. They remained true to Christ. Loyal. They hung in there. They had fidelity. Remember, we talked about that last week with Job. These saints were in Ephesus. Now, some ancient manuscripts have a blank there. And your Bible, if you have your Bible open and you look, you probably have a footnote there. So what that means is this letter was probably a circular letter. It would be read in one place and then passed around to other churches to read. Ephesus was the leading church of the region and leading city. So this letter would have been read there first and passed on to other churches. And that makes really good sense, because if you look at the introduction to the book of Ephesians, it doesn't. Paul doesn't say a lot of personal stuff like he does in some of his other letters. He in some of the other letters, he mentions a bunch of names and, and a bunch of personal stuff. But he doesn't do that here, even though we know that he was at Ephesus for three years. If it was just for them alone, then I think I imagine he would have had more personal information at the beginning of his letter. So I think this letter is a general theological letter meant for the Ephesian Christians and other Christians in surrounding areas. Ephesus was an important city. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It was situated on the west coast of Turkey. It was a seaport town. Lots of trade and commerce. It was a cosmopolitan place. Very rich. It was a banking center. And one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there. The temple to Diana, that would be the Latin name, or Artemis, the Greek name. Artemis was the fertility goddess. This place, Ephesus, was an occult center. Lots of demonic powers there. A demonic stronghold. When we get to Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks about that specifically. I want to read a quote. It has a little bit of length to it, but I think it kind of explains more about this temple to Diana and what the spiritual climate would have been at Ephesus. 
Paul, well experienced by now in evangelism, church planting and spiritual warfare on all levels, is ready to take on the fortress of Diana. He must have been stunned when he first saw Diana's temple, one of the most beautiful pieces of architecture in history. It was later classified as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's 93,500 square feet was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. Each of its now picture this 127 pillars are 60 foot tall. It's like six foot tall pillars and 127 of them were donated by a different king. Another indication of Diana's widespread influence. Its position in the visible world was evident to all, and its awesome standing as a power center in the invisible world was recognized by any who had eyes to see that dimension of reality. What exactly were the spiritual forces facing Paul in Ephesus? It was a large city, the fourth largest in the Roman Empire. According to Bruce Metzger, Ephesus was the magic capital of the whole ancient world. He says, Of all ancient Greco-Roman cities, Ephesus was by far the most hospitable to magicians, sorcerers, and charlatans of all sorts. As such, it is not surprising that Ephesus was a major producer of fetishes, which were key tools of the forces of darkness in almost all animistic societies. The silversmiths of Ephesus had developed a lucrative business In the manufacture and sale of fetishes, the so-called Ephesian writings were known throughout the Roman Empire. F.F. Bruce comments, the phrase Ephesian writings was commonly used in antiquity for documents containing spells and formulas to be placed in small cylinders or lockets worn around the neck or elsewhere on the person. Supernatural powers of darkness were rampant in Ephesus when Paul arrived. He did not have to be an expert in spiritual mapping to discover that the highest ranking spirit of all was Diana, sometimes called Artemis of the Ephesians. Diana was extraordinarily well known, not only in Asia Minor or Turkey, but throughout the whole Roman Empire. Clinton Arnold says that Diana was worshipped more widely by individuals than any other deity. So powerful spiritual warfare. So the book of Ephesians, as we go through that, we have to look at it in that lens. Paul is addressing these Christians who are living in the midst of this powerful spiritual forces of evil. And Paul stayed there the longest of any of the churches, three years. He began by teaching in the synagogues like he always did. Then he moved his headquarters to a local school. And we see from reading Acts 19 and 20, which provides some good background on this church, he really loved these people. It was so hard for him to say goodbye to them and they to him. And he put his pastor at Ephesus, his most trusted disciple, Timothy. And later church history records that the apostle John and Jesus's mother, Mary, lived at Ephesus. So in Acts 19, Paul comes to Ephesus and he preaches Christ and he faced heavy opposition right out of the gate. And if only two or three would have been converted, it probably would have gone okay. But so many got saved that it actually impacted the economy. Businesses 
were in existence there silversmiths who made little uh, silver idols of Diana. And the people bought those things. But as soon as they got saved, they threw them away. They stopped buying them. And so these businesses were impacted negatively by the Christians getting saved and stopping buying that stuff. So the silversmiths raised up a mob of opposition, some 30,000 people filled the theater at Ephesus. And this theater, the ruins of it are still there. If you wanted to be a tourist and go to Ephesus, you could still see the ruins of the theater where these 30,000 people filled it. It was an unruly mob. And you know how people just get pulled into the mob? They're just wondering what's going on there. And they could just get drawn in and they walk into the theater. And pretty soon they're screaming for hours along with everyone else. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for hours. Paul actually wanted to address the crowd and, and his Christian friends with him said, absolutely not. And it says in the story that a, a clerk, city clerk, calmed the crowds down. And that's an example of the secular government helping a Christian out. Someone wrote, and I love this quote, he said, everywhere Paul went, a riot breaks out. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. So this is now 10 years later from that event that Paul is in a jail cell in Rome with pen and paper in hand. He writes a letter to these Christians from jail. You know what? If that were me, I would say my ministry's over. I'm in jail now. There's nothing more I can do for God. But there was plenty God wanted to do through Paul. In fact, probably more influence through Paul's pen than his actual lips. He wrote these great letters that we're reading today. You know what? That Jesus mentioned this church in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 2, 1 to 7. Let's just read Revelation 2, 4. These are the words of Jesus. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. We're going to read as we go through the book of Ephesians, God's great love for them. Paul expresses that so eloquently there. And they were basking in it. But here in the mid 90s of the first century, maybe 40 years later, they get this stern warning from Jesus. Did they lose their first love because of persecution or or the demonic strongholds that were in that city or, or the wealth of the city because it was a very rich place? I think in many ways, the church in America, very much like the church at Ephesus, we have money. There's little persecution against us. We're comfortable. But the enemy is still alive and at work in the church, attacking the church while we're distracted by other things. And then we can lose our first love for Jesus as well. You know what happened to this church? Eventually it faded from the pages of church history. By the fourth century, it was still there. But after the fourth century, no more mention of the church at Ephesus. Sadly, churches die. They close their doors sometimes or perhaps they stay open, but just go through the motions. So these saints were not only in Ephesus, but they were also in Christ Jesus, a phrase that he uses 27 times. It's our mystical union with Christ. The Christian lives in two worlds We're a we're a spiritual being inside a physical body. Another way of thinking of it is we live in Hanover County or whatever county we live in, but we're also citizens of heaven. 
Colossians 3.1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus said, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Is my heart on the earth that I think of my citizenship on earth or do I think of it as in heaven? And if I think of it as solely and exclusively on earth, am I missing out on the spiritual riches God has for me? Think of it like this as as a diver. You're a deep sea diver. To be able to breathe under the water, obviously, you're going to have to have an oxygen source. So that oxygen tank on your back with that tube leading to a mask, which feeds you oxygen, keeps you alive while you're under the water for a long time. I think of that as an analogy to the Christian life. Jesus Christ being in him is our lifeline. If I don't have my daily relationship with Jesus Christ, then I'm not going to breathe well in this world. It's so important that daily you're in the word and in prayer, spending time with Christ and then putting into practice what you're reading. Now, look at verse two. Paul greets them with the phrase grace and peace. And that's the usual way he begins letters. Greek in the Greek grace is the usual way Greeks would open their letters. But Paul, being a Jew, adds the uh, Hebrew term shalom or peace. And this is really a prayer for them. Grace and peace. That's what I want for you. Grace and peace. Let's look at those two words. Grace is the word charis. It's used 12 times. And our word charisma comes from it, as does the word charm. I think a charm school with grace. Someone who has a lot of style and grace, a lot of good manners. They're sophisticated. Princess Grace, right? She had style and grace. You can look her up if you don't know who Princess Grace is. Elvis's home was called Graceland. Right. There was a pro baseball player named Mark Grace. And if you're in trouble, you're given a grace period. And there was a show on TV some years ago called Grace Under Fire. Don't think of grace as being for a princess. Think it as being for the undeserving, for the sinner. It's not because you have style and grace that you've received grace. You had just the opposite of that. But God lavished Grace on you by Christ Jesus. And the real Graceland isn't in Memphis. It's on the cross where the real king died there for your sins to give you grace and mark grace. You've been marked by God's grace. You've been given a grace period. God has suspended judgment because you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And. Grace under fire for us is really grace out of the fire of hell because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Now, the word peace, Hebrew shalom, Greek irony. Usually we think of peace as the absence of conflict. Two warring nations are no longer fighting each other. So there's peace. But this Hebrew or Greek word means wholeness, completeness. Alignment, well-being, the highest good. That's why this is a prayer. Paul is praying that you would have grace 
and you would have peace. Peace does not result from your circumstances being good. You actually could be on your deathbed and have peace. But God has taken away your worry, taken away your fear. He's won the battle. And so he's given you grace. And those two come from God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, two members of the divine trinity. Each day, God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, give us his grace and peace. Then in verse three, this is the theme verse for the first three chapters of Ephesians. Paul begins with a poem of praise to the Father and the Son. And verses 3 to 14, which we're not going to cover this morning. In fact, we're going to take a couple weeks to cover that. It's one long sentence in the Greek. There's nothing else quite like it in the Bible except for one other place, Ephesians 3, where Paul does this again. He just piles one descriptive phrase on top of the other. It's like he's in a state of ecstasy. Finally, by verse 14, he takes a breath. Have you ever met anyone like that? They just talk rapid fire. They never stop or take a breath. That's Paul. He's so excited here. He says, we've been blessed. Past tense. It's ours. It's promised to us. When Joshua entered the promised land, he didn't, once they got in there, he didn't say, God, can we have this land? He, it's already theirs. You just possess it. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Now, I want to talk about that more and explain what that means more next week. But let me just read a little paragraph or two here, just by way of introduction. The term heavenly places is a striking word describing the realm of the invisible, the real world of spiritual encounter and conflicts. There's that idea again, spiritual warfare, book of Ephesians. The heavenly places are not some location in the distant heavens, such as John sees in Revelation 4 and 5. Rather, these are realms of invisible spiritual conflict on earth where demon powers try to sustain control of humankind and world affairs. So we're going to see we're in a spiritual battle, folks, every day. But this is where we're seated with Christ and there's spiritual conflict. But we are overcomers. We're rich. We've been blessed. God is our father. You may not feel rich today, but the Bible says we're destroyed for lack of knowledge. We need to know how rich we are spiritually. All that we've been given, all that God's provided for us that we can draw from what's already yours. If you don't know what's covered by a warranty and you're still paying on something, it's because you didn't know. You need to know. I like this poem by Shaul Silverstein. My dad gave me one dollar, a one dollar bill, because I'm his smartest son. And I swapped it for two shiny quarters, because two is more than one. And then I took the quarters and traded them to Lou for three dimes. I guess he don't know that three is more than two. Just then, along came old blind Bates. And just because he can't see, he gave me four nickels for my three dimes. Because four is more than three. And I took those nickels to Hiram Combs down at the feed seed store. And that fool gave me five pennies for them. Because five is more than four. 
And then I went and showed my dad and he got red in the cheeks and closed his eyes and shook his head. Too proud of me to speak. Oh, what a dumb son I have. But that could be us. If we don't know who we are in Christ and all we've been blessed by, we could be trading in these valuable riches on much lesser stuff. We're going to look at our heavenly bank account next week. We need to know where our bank is to make a withdrawal. Ephesians 2, 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's where we are spiritually. That's where the conflict is. That's our position in Christ. It's a settled fact. It's who you are. God's already done it. Past tense. He's blessed you. All these deposits are there. And when we open an account and we want to make a withdrawal, Jesus signs the withdrawal slip and tells the father it's all covered. Okay, that's where we're going to go next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the book of Ephesians. It is so rich and so many great truths there. Lord, I just would pray that right now as we begin that journey together, that we are going to learn new things about you and new things about ourselves. New things that are going to help us spiritually realize the spiritual conflict that we face every day that we might be unaware of and that we're losing out. But, Lord, you want us to win and be on top because we're we're seated in heavenly places. May we realize that even this week in our daily lives, I pray in Jesus name. Amen.